I wanted to say, kind of reiterate what Matt said about last week. Thank you again for the picnic and for all the good conversations and the chance to get to visit and talk with everybody and get to know folks. It was a lot of fun and and uh, just keep continuing to look forward to getting to know more of you better and just continue to have those conversations. Um, last week, if you weren't here, we started a new series called Building Blocks, and we kind of talked about that capstone, that first block that has to be Jesus, the, the stone that the builders rejected and how we can't build on some uh, expectations that a, a, a leader here that's a flesh and bone, a person, is going to be flawless and be the perfect leader, that we have to not rely on the kings and the leaders of this world, but we have to rely on the king who is the only king who has ever saved us from our sins. And so we're going to continue to build on that this week, as Matt alluded to, that humility that we mentioned. We're going to kind of build off of that a little bit more this morning. And to start with that, I thought it'd be fun to have a little fun, right? How many of you like to be right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yep, all of us like to be right. In fact, that's kind of one of the reasons I think we enjoy trivia games. Anybody like trivia? Play trivia games? Yeah. I thought it would be fun to try a few this morning just to to get our brains going a little bit to kind of kick in. So we're going to play a little trivia game, and this is how it's going to work. I've got a couple categories, a couple questions. We'll throw it up there for just a few seconds, give you just a second to think about it before that you know, there's always that one kid in the class who, like, shoots their hand up. They know the answer right away. I want to give the rest of us a few seconds to catch on, and then I'll let somebody blurt out the answer, and we'll move on and just kind of test ourselves this morning, see how well we do in a few different categories. And since I've been land, living in the land of football for the last eight years, it's really nice for me to be back in a place where they appreciate basketball. And so I figure we start with that category, basketball. So let's put this first question up here. It's going to be a little blurry. Uh-oh, they didn't come through. Oh, good. Okay, that's fine. We can, we can make it work. I know the questions if we ultimately can't get it. Oh, wow. That came through a lot blurry. All right. Who is, I know the answer. I know the question and the answer. It'll be all right. Who is the shortest player to ever play in the NBA? Think about it for a second. All right, who knows the answer? It's not Spub Webb. My town, I don't know, that may be right on. This is the internet. I just trust everything it says, right? <laughs> Tyrone Muggsy Bogues is the name that was listed. He was a big deal whenever I used to actually watch the NBA. All right, so that's what the internet said. If you want to dispute it, you can argue with them. That's cool. All right, what else? The next one up here is, uh, oh, yeah, Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. There's the answer. Next question is, who is the only head coach to ever win an NCAA national championship as well as an NBA title? Anybody know? Shout it out if you know. No? All right, the answer is Mr. Larry Brown. Larry Brown. All right, so maybe we didn't know that one. That's all right. That's at least, again, the Internet. You can argue with them. Um, I didn't find a reason not to believe them, so. All right, next category. Some of you are like, basketball may not be my thing. That's fine. I thought maybe Disney might be a safer bet. My family's about to go there. We're about to dive into Disney World. It's a trip we've had planned for a while. So let's try a Disney question. Disney question is, in 1959, there was this movie put out by Disney called Sleeping Beauty. In that movie, Princess Aurora is betrothed to who? Anybody know his name? Huh? Prince Philip, that is correct. It is Prince Philip that she is betrothed to in the movie. See, and then he's ultimately the dude who flings the sword and takes down the dragon. So, 
the next question, and this will be a little interesting. I'm not sure how many, you got to be like a real Disney fan to probably know this one. What is Walt Disney's middle name? Somebody know it? It's not Mickey. The answer is Elias. E-L-I-A-S, Elias. Walt Elias Disney. So, all right, we maybe are not Disney experts, and that's okay. All right, next category, the final category, is history. I figure there are some of you who are pretty sharp when it comes to history, or in some cases it may just be general recall. So I apologize if that's the case. But um, history, we'll start with this question. Who was, or no, not who was, what was the automotive company and I'll butcher this one because it was a little longer, but who was the first automotive company to fully uh, introduce an assembly line to build the entire car? Was that? Everybody knows that one, right? There's There's enough people who are into cars in this room. I know that already. And then finally, Apollo 11 mission. They go up to the moon. There's two guys, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, who go and walk on the moon. Who's the guy who stayed in the command module? What's that? Michael Collins, that's correct. All right, so how do we do this morning? Are we feeling good about ourselves or are we feeling a little rough? Okay, hopefully some of you are feeling like, hey, I got that. And that's the thing, category-wise, maybe this one we feel more comfortable or this one we feel more comfortable. And if I would change the categories and let you pick, if this was your Jeopardy show and you had to stake all of your winnings on that one question, which category would you choose, right? There's a lot of different categories in our lives that we feel pretty confident in. Things that we could talk about. Maybe it's something to do with our job and and the field that we've studied. Maybe it's a hobby that we're just really into that we invest a lot of our time and energy into. Regardless, some of us have these things in our lives, these categories and fields of interest where we feel like we could hold our own in a conversation. We have a fair bit of expertise, and it feels good to know the answer. It feels good to be prepared to talk about that without any question. It feels good to know that we're secure in what we understand. But in all honesty, I think that kind of bleeds over not just in our understanding of hobbies or our career, but it also bleeds into here, right? And God's word. As a Christian, we kind of have this feeling that we need to be prepared to give an answer. We need to know all the information. We need to know how to defend it and stand for it. And we need to be prepared to wrestle with God's, excuse me, the truth of God's word and be an expert. And that does one of two things, I think, in our lives. Sometimes it makes some of us feel really good about what we know. We've grown up in church. We've read these stories. We've gained a fair bit of knowledge and understanding from different books and literature and classes over the course of time, and we feel pretty confident in our understanding of this book, and sometimes that can build us up to this level that I'm not sure is good for us, while others that are right here among us didn't have some of that background or haven't fully grasped or haven't wrestled with all the truths, and all of a sudden there's this pressure and this need to feel like we need to know all the answers, and yet I just don't feel equipped to talk about that passage. I don't feel equipped to talk about that subject. Honestly, I read that book and I just get so confused, and there are so many laws and so many things, and I just feel flustered. And there's this moment where we have to kind of wrestle with the question, How do we treat God's word? 
what is the expectation for us in terms of wrestling with the truth of God's word and how is it to interact and engage in our lives? And that's what I want to talk about this morning is how do we move forward with God's word in that humility that we discussed earlier. And so before we do that, I want to start with a word of prayer and I'm going to do something a little different that I don't normally do. I've actually kind of written out a prayer, not a prayer that I came up with, but a prayer that's kind of based off of a passage of scripture in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in scripture, which is basically this beautiful love letter, this pouring out of the admiration and love for God's word. So if you would, just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep your testimonies, who seek you with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in your ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that our ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then we shall not be put to shame, having our eyes fixed on all your commandments. We will praise you with an upright heart when we learn your righteous rules. We will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake us. But Lord, please meet with us and help us to see your word with joy, with humility, and with understanding today. Help us to surrender to you and to your word so that we may be humbled and made new. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. I'll be honest, I was, I was in a coffee shop on Tuesday prepping for this morning. And I was looking at Psalm 119, knowing that I was going to be talking about the word and truth. And, and just kind of looking at that passage, and I found myself not seeing text that is to be used or to be brought here this morning to kind of help build my presentation, my, my thoughts, my, my case for what I was going to say, but I found myself just being pulled into the beauty of these words, and I simply found myself kind of broken down in the middle of this coffee shop around all these people just praying these words, passage after passage, and there are a lot of those passages in that chapter. And I just found myself praying these words and letting God speak to my heart and kind of transform my attitude and my heart this morning. And, and that morning, and it was just this beautiful time, and I'm hearing the words that are being presented. Father, thank you for your commandments, for your guidance, for your direction. Thank you for your testimonies, for your story, for the, for the understanding of where you've come from and where you're going. Thank you. Verse 105 refers to God's word as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thank you for your direction and your guidance and what you give me through your word. And, and it kind of got me thinking about the fact that so many different people in our world and our culture and even in this room probably view this book in such different ways. Some of us in the world, and I say some of us, probably a lot of other people view this as just a book of fairy tales. It's something that somebody else wrote about some God that we think might exist to make us feel better about the tough stuff we go through and to make us kind of stay in line and be well-behaved people. And it's out of date and it's no longer useful and we've got science and we've got other stuff and we don't need those fairy tales anymore. That's how some people view this book. Meanwhile, there are others who might say, oh, it was good teaching. It was Jesus was a good teacher. He's an interesting guy. But there's not really any actual divine obligation. There's probably not a before and after. There's probably not any of those kind of things that we need to worry about. It's just good general principles to live by, good philosophy book. Others of us might say, oh, this is the book I was raised on, and my parents, they taught me all the things that I was doing wrong out of this book, like all the ways I messed up and all the ways I'd fallen short, and this is a rule book that tells you exactly how to walk, and if you step a toe out of line, boom, this is the consequences, this is how it's going to end, 
be in this because you need to know the rules because you don't want to mess up because you know what the consequences are for messing up. And it's a book that gives us these guidelines that we walk through fearfully. Others view it as maybe this puzzle to be unlocked, the secrets of life. How can God bless us? How can God direct us? How can God guide us if we do the right things and say the right things and step the right direction and do what he's called us to do? He'll make this life better if we just follow the formula and the puzzle written in these pages. And regardless of how people view it, there's so much disparity in, in perspective and how people see it and how people read it that we find ourselves needing to dive in. We feel this urgency to find out what it actually says, to understand what God was actually trying to teach and prepare a defense so that we can stand on it and we can correct all of the broken misconceptions on God's word. We feel this pressure and this need to, like uh, the, the, the scriptures say, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And so we, we wrestle with it and we start to try to find all the answers. And there are all these outside threats that, that just seem unhealthy for what my stance is. So when they start teaching evolution in school, I go, man, we can't let that happen. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. And so we dive into Genesis and we start building a case for exactly why a seven-day creation makes sense. And we start pouring ourselves completely into this so that we can stand up against this false teaching that is evolution so we can be prepared to, to argue and to fight and defend. And we kind of build up this battle line where it's them versus us because we know what God's Word says. Or maybe it's even just in the church. There's this perspective of fear. What is all this for? What does it all mean? In the end, what is actually going to happen and so we turn to the back of the book and we start digging through revelation and i'll be honest i took a full semester class on apocalyptic literature when i was in college part of the book of daniel and in the book of revelation and and i and i i came in with some understanding that i thought i had and i walked out going i am so much more confused than when i went in because i spent an entire semester digging through these writings only to find out that there are six different perspectives or so, like so many different perspectives on how people view that book and all of them kind of made sense to some degree, and, and it's so many different things that people see and understand and read, but we feel like we have to devote ourselves to that so we can be able to give an answer for those people who are afraid, who might wrestle with, why is this worth it? Why does it matter? What's ultimately going to happen in the end? Is there going to be anything? And again, we pour ourselves into finding the answers and being prepared, which again, I'm not saying is bad. Or maybe it's just the, the church down the street who has different doctrine and theology. They, they believe this on once saved, always saved. Or they believe this on communion. Or they believe this on baptism. And I need to show them this is what God's word actually says right here. It's right here. Did you not see that? I had a theology class when I was in college where my professor was really, really good at defending the other side of the argument. And all the kids in class would just get so bothered and so worked up, and he would do such a great job of explaining why their stance was wrong. And they just would lose their minds, and they just didn't know what to do with themselves, and then he would calmly at the end help them understand why he agreed with them. But man, they, they were just so lost for words because they didn't know how to defend their own case. And he would stand there, and he would direct them and help them understand, and it's the same kind of thing. We feel like we need to build these defenses, and every time we do it, we draw a line. I'm over here, you're over there, and we disagree, and we're going to disagree, and so I've got to convince you to step over here with me until it's done. Because we have to stand for the truth. 
for God's word. We have to defend the truth. And I wholeheartedly believe that we stand on the truth. I talked about it last week. We build on that cornerstone of who Jesus is. But I think we need to make sure we understand what truth and God's word really are. And there's this important passage I want you to turn to. It's just John chapter 1. I did it, Dan. I didn't say 1 John. I keep saying 1 John when I mean John chapter 1. So, John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth gospel. It's not one of the synoptic gospels. Um, We're going to start at the very beginning of that chapter. And I want us to understand some very important things about who Jesus is and what this passage is saying. And while you're turning there, I want to give you another kind of bit of information about myself. I'm not going to have all the verses that we're going to read up on the screen every week. And part of that is because, just like I mentioned last week, I am capable of mistakes. Um, I I am not infallible. I am not uh, perfect. I I have this uh, tendency to get excited, and I may miss the point. And so in the midst of that, it's good for you to have that open so you can see it for yourself. It's good for you to be able to see the chapters before and the chapters after, because I'm talking about a specific section But it's important to see it in context. And so I would encourage you to bring one of these along with you and read along with us so that you can kind of see where we're at and maybe mark it, write it down. There should be a place in your bulletin to kind of jot down those references and read them again this week while you're at home just to double check me because I'm going to do my best to hold true to what God's word is teaching. But at the same time, man, I need accountability. I need people speaking into my life saying, hey, are you sure? Did you see this part? What do you do with that? And the more we have that conversation, the more we strengthen each other. The other side of it is I'm reading from the ESV this morning, uh, just because this is one of the ones I've been reading lately. It's kind of considered a more literal translation. We're trying to take Greek and Hebrew, and we're trying our best to put them into English. Greek and Hebrew from a culture where things they said then don't translate the same way to things we say now. We're doing our best to make those translations, and so some of you may have King James, some of you may have NIV. It's all okay. We kind of read through those together, and the more words we hear from scholars trying to do their best to maintain the heart, the more we can put together that big piece and see God's heart. But this morning, I want to read John chapter 1, and I want you to listen, follow along with me, and you'll notice there's a couple verses here at the end that I want us to look at. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to stop right there for just a second and point this out. In the beginning was the word. That Greek word is logos, means word. But it's capitalized, it's given propriety. It is given this meaning that carries more than just word as in God's word. It is a specific reference to Jesus himself. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. Sometimes we get this idea that Jesus came along later in a manger and that's where he starts. He didn't start there. He has always been fully and completely God and with God and equal with God the Father. And in the beginning all things were created in him and through him. Nothing was created without him. And he was the light that came into this world to light the way. He brings with him life, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This next part, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light. God sent this messenger ahead, this messenger who I love later on in this, this same passage. In, in, as we read the book of John, it talks more about John the Baptist. And I love this reference a little later where people are starting to go to Jesus to be baptized. And John's followers get upset. And they say, hey, they're going over there to Jesus. Like, the people who were coming here to be baptized by you are now going to him. Aren't you going to be upset? He's like, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. I was only ever here. I know you liked me. I know you liked my teaching. I know you loved to hear from me. I was only ever here to proclaim him. I have to decrease. I'm not the main attraction here. He is. He's the one I've been speaking of whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. He is the one that's important here. And he says, it's not me who shines the light. Right here in John, in this verse, he says, it wasn't John that came to shine the light. It's not John that's here to reveal the mistakes and the brokenness. It's not John that's here to correct everyone. It's John who's here to proclaim Christ so that Christ can be the one that shines the light into the world. Starting in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This light that came in the world to give life, to bring everyone back to him, he's born of the people of Israel. He is born of God's chosen people. He is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham back in the Old Testament. I will raise someone up through your lineage who will rescue all of humanity, who will bring all people back to me. It's the promise that's right there in the book of Genesis is being fulfilled in Jesus. And here he's saying it wasn't because these people weren't saved, they weren't made in his image, they weren't brought into relationship, they weren't made to be children of God because of who they were born to in a lineage or a specific group of people. They weren't made his children because they chose to and it was their decision and they did all the right things they were supposed to. They weren't his children because someone else declared, oh yeah, you're, you, you absolutely can be. I, it's not my will. It's not something I can declare. But only because God's word and God's truth comes in and God himself declares that all people can now be my children through Jesus alone. And the, world, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, that ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This this statement that we had the law, we had so many opportunities, even before the law with Noah, God wipes humanity clean and starts with a righteous man, but even a righteous man and his family can't get back off on the right foot. It's not just Adam who was broken. All of humanity is broken because after the flood, Noah gets off the boat and falls into inappropriate actions again and sin continues to just fester in this world. And so God raises up his chosen people with this promise through Abraham 
And through Abraham's line, he continues to fulfill this promise, and he offers the law, like we talked a little bit about last week, and people continue to fall on their face. They can't follow it. They have the sacrifices. They have ways to be clean and pure before God, and they still can't stay in his word. They still can't fulfill the law. They still can't do what's right. And so Jesus comes not to abolish the law, not to do away with it, but to complete it. And in this moment, God, who we were now separated from because of our sin, who we haven't been able to be in the presence of, who we've not had contact with, is now made known to us because his word, his truth, his everything that he wants us to understand has now come and been made known to us in the flesh to walk amongst us and to show us exactly how we're called to live. The truth and the word came to dwell among us. They became flesh and we're here. And the life of Jesus now becomes this vastly important thing that we must see and we must follow. And we have to learn from his teaching and what he's saying. And that doesn't negate anything else in this book. It doesn't make the commandments any less important. It doesn't make God's heart and his teaching all throughout history any less important. But he now becomes the lens by which we see. You ever seen those uh, red things that you get in like the cereal boxes? It's kind of like a red jarble mess and there's like some blue writing behind it. And you put up that little red lens that kind of came in the cereal box. Now you can read the message that's there. Think about it in that sort of way. All of this stuff has been there. It's been presented. And sometimes it's kind of hard for us to decipher But when we look through the lens of who Jesus is and how Jesus walked and the things that Jesus taught and the life that Jesus lived, things start to become more clear. He starts to make this presentation and this understanding of this is how we live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the other law hinges on these two things. He starts to reach down to the broken He starts to turn over tables of all the religious leaders who thought they had it all together. They thought they understood this book inside and out. They thought they had all the answers. They thought they already knew what they needed to know. And he's yelling at them saying, you are so blind and clueless. You act all put together on the outside, but inside you're a rotten mess. He's reaching out to those who are hurting and broken, and he's not coming in and hitting them over the head with God's word, saying, this is how you're broken. You're not, this is why you're a mess. He comes to Peter on the shore with his nets, and he doesn't tell Peter, hey, Peter, I want you to follow me, but here's the application process. Here's all the things we're going to have to work through before you can take this job. He says, come follow me, and I'll teach you how to catch men. I'll teach you how to make disciples. I'll teach you how to spread my word and to spread the word of God, and the truth into other people's lives. Just come follow me. I know you're a mess. You're going to mess up a lot. In fact, you're going to lose faith. You're going to deny me three times. You're going to cut off some dude's ear trying to defend me. And I'm going to have to calm you down time and time again. And I'm going to have to reinstate you and say, if you really love me, could you just go do what I said and feed my sheep, love my people, help them to understand my heart, help them to see who I was and what I've called them to be? Because he was a mess. Paul was a mess. Paul was so zealous about God's word and what he thought he understood about God's word that he drug Christians into the streets and stoned them. He may have stood by and held people's coats while they stoned him, but he was there in the presence doing the dirty work, being zealous and killing followers of Christ because he thought he was defending God's word until God knocked him off his horse. Jesus met with him and blinded him and said, you, why are you persecuting me? 
Why do you think you're standing up for me, but you're not? You're hurting me. And he transforms his life and says, follow me. See what I see. Don't see what you need to see. He makes him blind. I love that part of it. You think you see everything. You think you know everything. You're going to have to depend on me. And he radically transforms the way Paul ministers. You see, when we start to recognize how Jesus operated in the lives of people, one of my favorites is a little further on in John chapter 4. He meets this woman at a well. He's in Samaria, which it says he had to go to, which most Jews didn't have to go to. Most Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. And he gets there middle of the day, and here's this woman who's getting water, which is not the time of day you go get water. She's by herself. So she's a Samaritan. We already don't associate with them. And she is a woman who's viewed as lesser by society because she's here by herself when no one else is because she doesn't want to face the ridicule and the pain and the torment of all the other women there. She kind of wants to hide and just be by herself. And here she is at this well, and Jesus says, could you get me some water? Like, that's a big deal that he talks to her even. Like, you know that I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Like, we don't talk, and you're a man, and I'm a woman, and we don't talk, and you just ask me for water. And he says, yeah, but if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for water. She goes, how are you supposed to get water? You don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to get the water with. He goes, no, I have water that's better, water that will make you never thirsty again. She immediately perks up. She's like, if I had water that would allow me to never come to this well again, that would be great because this is a source of pain in my life. This is a source of place I don't want to be in my life. And he reaches out to her and he just continues to help her understand. He continues to teach her about that heart of who he is. And he, he kind of says something, not accusatory, not mean-spirited. He just says, how about you go and get your husband and we can talk more about this. Uh, yeah, I don't have a husband. I, um, I don't have a husband. I know. You had this many, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Um, and so she starts to get nervous, and she starts to talk, kind of trying to defend her actions, and he just says, you know, you Samaritans think that you worship here, but there's coming a time where the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, and he continues to teach her and offer her hope, and to the point where he tells her he is the Messiah, the one who was promised, the one who was coming, he reveals himself to her in a way that allows her to know that she is in the presence of the Messiah, the Christ. And you know what she runs off and does? I love this part of the story. She runs around and gets all of her friends and says, come here, you've got to meet this guy. He told me everything I've ever done wrong. Like, there's, like, how many of you have been told you're wrong before? And then ran off and got everybody in town, said, come back, you got to meet this guy who just told me I was wrong. You might have gone and gotten a group of people so you could go beat the snot out of that guy. But we don't like to go gather up people to go meet the person who told us we were wrong. You see, that's the difference when the truth and the word of God, the love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the embodiment of everything God is and God stands for interacts in your life and you recognize the beauty and the joy and the hope that is offered through his life. And when you see that, you go, I don't even care that he just told me about my brokenness. He is so good. That light reveals all the brokenness in us. And the problem is we forget sometimes because we try to help everybody understand their brokenness. We try to help them see all their wrongness. We are the ones who are trying to go in and defend and tell everybody how they're a mess. And the problem is we forgot that we were a mess too. Not that we were a mess and now we're better. Like that we are a mess. 
Romans chapter 5 is another passage. Uh, I, I can read this one. You can follow along or whatever. Romans chapter 5. Um, Starting at verse 1, just these few verses here. It says something really important for us to remember. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, in the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were still sinners, while we were still a broken mess, Christ died for us. And I think we all understand that we haven't reached perfection yet. Sanctification is a thing. Holiness is a thing that we all work towards and strive towards. But it's not something that many of us are going to accomplish in this life because we all still fall to our selfish desires, our selfish ways. We still fall short of the glory of God regularly. And God is still, like Peter, just bringing us along saying, Hey, come with me. Follow me. Be transformed to be like me. And he had to send the Holy Spirit to work in us to really, truly start to change who we are. And that's just it. We wrestle with, okay, if I'm a broken mess and people don't want to hear from another broken mess that they're a broken mess, then how am I supposed to, to share truth? How am I supposed to, to share God's word? How am I supposed to be a light? How am I supposed to do all those things I know I'm supposed to do? That's simple. No one can argue with the truth, right? When they're truly encountered with the church, the truth, people try to argue with the truth. And they, they really, what they try to do is they try to take these words, and we can all twist words. We can all zoom in so close that we miss the big picture. We can all twist words and manipulate passages. But the truth is Christ's life and example and the walk that he lived and the things that he accomplished and the things that he did, the humility he offered of himself, the things he was doing spoke truth into the world they showed light into the world and here's the thing if we really want to make a difference if we really want to present the truth then we allow ourselves to be transformed by the truth so that we are the living truth that the scripture would come to life when it says i no longer live but christ lives in me because here's the thing when we walk into this book feeling like we got a good grasp we feel pretty confident when we walk in feeling like we already got all the answers and we know all the things, a lot of times what we end up doing is we close ourselves off. And we're just reading in agreement. We're going, yep, that's a good passage there in 1 Corinthians. Oh, yep, that's a good passage there in Mark. I wish more people would know that. And more often than not, we're reading Scripture. We're thinking about the people in our lives who need to hear that and understand it. And we're not reading it in a way where we're surrendered to God on our faces and our feet saying, God, I know I've read this a thousand times, but I know you still have work to do in my heart. And I know you still have something to teach me. And I want to come before you in humility, being transformed by your word. Because here's the thing. When I think I know all the answers, in a lot of ways, I shut myself off to the light. 
and I continue wandering around in darkness, just bumping into every wall I come across. Because there are a lot of us who think we know how church should be done. There are a lot of us who think we know how that preacher should have said it. There are a lot of us who think that we know exactly how our neighbors should be living and how those Methodists down the street should actually be taking communion. And I'm sorry if that hurt your toes a little. Not really. I love you, though. Because I'm sitting here saying, the only thing that matters is the truth transforming your heart and your life. Because if we're letting the truth transform us and then we walk in truth and we say, hey, come hang out with me. I want to, let's go do something. Let's go hang out. And I am living more like Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are living in me. I don't have to tell that person I agree with how sinful and messed up and broken they are. I don't. But I also don't have to be mean about it either. <laughs> I can say, yeah, I know you don't have a husband, and I know that the person you're living with is not your husband. But we can still talk about the love and the hope that exists in Jesus. I don't need to sort that out. Jesus will sort that out in you. If you tr put your trust and your faith in him and start following him, it's not my job to correct all your sin. It's my job to keep working through mine with humility and brokenness and to love you and bully you along and say, let's study together, let's move together, let's learn together. He will transform your heart if you surrender humbly to his word just like he has to me because look, I am a living example that's hard to argue with. I used to be like this, but man, I've been transformed like this. And then it's no longer about semantics and words. It's about, yeah, I can't deny the fact that you were a mess and you're still a mess, but man, you're far less of a mess. And I like being around you a whole lot more than I did then. And man, those other folks down the street, Scripture tells us they will know we are dis his disciples by the way that we love one another, by the way that we live the way he lived, by the way that we are transformed in his likeness and his image, and he continues that work in us. And it's not that we shouldn't study God's word and have an answer. We absolutely should. But we misunderstand when that passage says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And if I just read some of those passages right, the only hope I have is Jesus. And I will always be prepared to give an answer for him and why he is good. And why he is the light that came into the world. Why he is God's word in flesh. I will always be prepared to stand up for him and to love him. But more importantly, I will be adamant about falling on my face before him and saying, God, I am far, far, far from looking like you. Continue to transform me. And if we walk in a humble way of addressing his word, not as a tool to be used to make everybody else conform to our will, but as a guide that shows us the heart of God and allows him and his Holy Spirit to work in us and transform us because this is his love story of redemption and rescue and how he's chasing after us. If we surrender and let that be the thing that changes us, then we found a way to wrestle through this book in a way that's healthy. I'm not saying we still don't want to understand Jesus, Genesis. I'm not saying we still shouldn't try to wrestle with all the important things that are in there but we don't do it with an air of I'm right and they're wrong and they should just get on board. We do it with an air of humility, understanding that Jesus is the one who we want to be like and he always had a perfect way of putting the most important thing first. And so I want to put the most important thing first, becoming more like him through his word. Not using it as my tool to make everybody else bend to my image or my understanding of it, but allowing it to be the transformative piece of the puzzle that changes my heart and transforms me so that I no longer live, 
but that Christ lives in you. So this morning, we're going to pray. And the worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing. And this morning, there may be simple. You may just need to pray. And you just need to ask God, how am I stubborn in my ways and think that I've got it all figured out? How do I need to have my heart softened? How do I need to stand humbly before you and before your word? Maybe it is, maybe it's just the simple fact that I've never taken that first step to follow you, to be transformed, to be, to believe. That's the, that's that beautiful first step is to believe that he is that hope. Believe he is that light. Believe that he is who he says he is. And so maybe it's taking that first step to follow. I would love to introduce you because he will transform your, your life in radical ways. Or maybe... Maybe we have hurt someone in the room because we took a stand on what we thought was right and we put being right over someone we love. And maybe there's brokenness even in the family and maybe this morning it's just about walking across the room and saying, I'm sorry, I love you more than I love being right. I don't want to work through this. Whatever it is you've got to work through, whatever it is you've got to pray through, I ask that you stand. If there's something else going on in your life and you want one of us to pray with you, please come forward. We'd love to do that. But I want us to go before him and surrender ourselves to him and say, Father, What is it you're trying to do in me this morning, and how do you want to change me and make me more like you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the ways that your word has caused me to fall in love with you, the ways I've been able to see your pursuit of us since the beginning of Scripture and that promise to Abraham all the way through to now. And Father, there are still so many things I don't understand or don't know and details that I don't know. And Father, you give me peace in understanding that some of it's a mystery. But Father, this morning I rest assured and confident in the fact that you are truth. That you are the word made flesh and that if I have taken my eyes off of you and I am not following you, then I am lost and wandering in the darkness. And so Father, this morning I pray that you would shine your light in my heart and help me to see. That I would continue to be made new this morning because I am far from perfect. I love you and it's in the wonderful name of Jesus that I pray these things.